History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 105th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And welcome back to Denise. We got her back in the studio again. Yay. I'm glad to be home. Did you have a fun trip? I absolutely did. Got to spend some quality time with your father. Yes, I did. And she brought me back some great haunted and true crime books from Virginia. I'm very excited about. I know it looks like we'll have some good spooky stories coming up. Well, this episode was supposed to feature a place called The Cloisters, which was suggested to us by a listener. And as I dug into it, Denise, I found that there were three different places with the name The Cloisters. There was one in New York, there was one in Maryland, and then Bob let me know that there was one over there in the UK. And we didn't find any hauntings at any of those three locations. Uh-oh. So I said, hmm, that's not really going to work if we don't have at least one little ghost poking around or at least a story about a ghost poking around. And we were kind of short on time. So I said, I've been doing some research on this other topic that I put back on the back burner. Why don't we pull it out and go ahead and do it? So on this episode, we are featuring the life and afterlife of my favorite comedian, Lucille Ball. Oh, that will be fantastic. Absolutely. And I put it out to the Spooktacular crew and asked them for some of their opinions about Lucille Ball. And we will share those with you as we get into the show. And just an amazing woman. She was not just a really funny lady. She was amazing as a businesswoman and gorgeous and all kinds of good stuff. So I'm looking forward to sharing her life with our listeners. And apparently she's still hanging around. So we're sharing her afterlife too. Before we get into that, we'd like you to check out our website, History Goes Bumped. Dot com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They'll do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Angie Lucent. I hope I said that right. First off, thank you so much for the research you do for your podcast. I love hearing the little tidbits in the On This Day segment, especially the one you did on the National Cash Register Company in Dayton, Ohio. I currently work in the old NCR building in Dayton. NCR was a huge part of our city's rich history. Anyway, I love your podcast and haven't missed an episode since Bizarre States recommended it. And then she gave me a suggestion of a cemetery in Ohio for us to check out. Oh, very cool. So I thought it was really neat because you think you do a This Day in History about the invention of the cash register and it's not really going to resonate with anybody. Well, here it did. She actually works in the building where that company was set up. Exactly. You never know what's going to touch you. Exactly. So very cool. Sarah let us know on the website she'd listened to our Queens Park episode, which was number 57. She said, I know this is a bit of an older episode, so you ladies might have already gotten an answer on the origin of the term grotesque. But if not, this article that she sent me, she thought would be of interest to us. And she really loves listening to the podcast. So I checked out the article. And Denise, the term grotesque goes back to the time of Nero. He died in 68 AD, and he had this extraordinary palace built that was called the Domus Aurea, or Golden House. There was gold and precious stones. It was decorated with frescoes, had marble sculptures, multicolored stucco. Well, of course, after he died, this was looted, and then they buried it up to the ceilings, and they used it as a foundation for the baths that they built for Titus and Trajan. 
and the lake in the valley below was drained, and on its bed, the Colosseum was erected. So these frescoes that were in the Domus Aurea were hidden until they were rediscovered in 1480, and it was actually an accident when they were found. And the legend that goes with this is that a young Roman fell into a crevice that had opened up on the Opian Hill to find himself in a kind of passageway with walls covered in painted figures. Now, this would be weird if you fall into a hole and all of a sudden you've got paintings around you. Exactly. That'd be very weird. The news quickly spread and the prominent artists of the time, lovers of the arts of antiquity, such as Pinturicchio, Gerlandio, Raphael, Giovanni de Odin, Filippino Lupi, and Guilio Romano, and I know I slaughtered those, were let down on ropes to look around at what was at first thought to be caverns or grotte, and to copy the amazing decorations that covered every surface. For this reason, the decorations of the Doma Seria and all those inspired by them over the following centuries, they were much in vogue in the 16th century, came to be known as grottes. And I, I'm sure I said that wrong too. But anyway, grottes is known in English as grotesques. And then unfortunately, those of the Doma Seria have almost completely disappeared. Their rediscovery caused serious damage to the paintings and stuccos, which when they were exposed to the air and the humidity lost their color. So that is where the term grotesque comes from. Very cool. So actually, what's funny about that is that we kind of use it to talk about something being yuck. And it actually was to describe some things that were beautiful. And that were very spectacular. So yeah, they just happen to be in a different kind of location. Yeah, so you're pretty grotesque, Diane. Thanks, Denise. You're welcome. Speaking of which, we hope everybody had a fabulous Valentine's Day. Oh, yes. We hope it was fun. The Day of Hearts. Uh, Shelley Emery let us know over at the Spooktacular crew that she's enjoying the podcast immensely. She started with the most recent episodes and is now listening to the older ones from the beginning. Uh, she says, I am privileged to be able to listen at work in my cube and the stories, though spooky, definitely brighten my day. I love the chemistry that Diane and Denise share. It doesn't just feel like I'm being told stories. It feels like friends are sharing stories with me. Wish I were closer to join you on Ghost Walk Adventures. Maybe one day I'll make it to the opposite coast. Oh, and by the way, I too found my way to HGB via Bizarre States. (laughs) There's another Bizarre Stater. We will be forever thankful to Bizarre States for that. And I believe Shelly lives in Oregon. So I said, well, maybe someday we'll make it over to your coast. Yeah, Oregon is absolutely gorgeous. Well, and anybody who listens to the Black Tapes podcast or Tannis knows that they sure make the Pacific Northwest sound awfully creepy. So we'll have to we'll have to check it out. I've never been to Oregon. Yeah, we'll definitely check it out. And I've heard they even have sparkly vampires up there. Oh, Denise. Well, we want to welcome to the Spectacular Crew, Mary. Hey, Mary. Shelly with an E-Y. Hey, Shelly with an E-Y. Angelina. Angelina. And Anna Kazali. And Anna Kazali. Hope we said that right. That's a very cool name. I was just copying Diane just for the record. We'll call her Anna for short. Also wanted to let everybody know that the most recent podcast of Just a Story podcast, you might hear a familiar voice in their intro. They did an episode on Psycho, and I talk a little bit about the movie at the beginning. So I encourage you to check that out. Denise, we wrapped up our design contest for the exclusive design that we're going to be using for 2016. We ended up getting 10 entries which people can check out at our blog. They were all fantastic entries. Yes, they were. If you go to historygoesbump.com and you click on the blog tab, it'll take you over to our blog, and then you just uh, scroll down to Design Contest 2016 or put that in the search and you'll find it. It was a very hard decision to make. We have very talented listeners. Yes, we do. In fact, the decision was so hard, I ended up, I was carrying the designs around on my cell phone 
And so I have lots of people and I'd say, okay, out of all of these, which of these designs would you like to wear on a shirt? And so that's what I use to help a lot with making my decision. So we're going to have our top three. Number three was a tie between Chris and Swintech and Shelby Labrie. Number two was the design by Matt Hazley. And the winner of the 2016 design contest is? The design that was pretty darn creepy. And that's what people really liked about it was the creep factor. And that was the one submitted by Rhonda Williams. Yes, this one had a lot of those kinds of elements in it. Not only was it creepy, but it also has a historical feel to it. It's got this these old these kids dressed in what looks like almost Victorian clothing from an old picture and just very very cool. We appreciate all of those submissions. We of course will be running another design contest in 2017. So we hope everybody will participate in that again as well. Well, Denise, are you ready to share a little bit about Lucille Ball with everybody? I sure am. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. We featured green burials in our oddity segments before in the form of organic tree pods in which your putrefying body feeds a tree by the roots for a couple years. The latest in green burials is the mushroom death suit. J. Rim Lee and Mike Ma are founders of the Koyo Company, which has created the Infinity Death Suit. This is considered to be another eco-friendly alternative to standard burial, and one of its positive benefits is that it apparently has the ability to remove the 200-plus toxins from your body as it decomposes. The suit is full body, including the head, and comes in black, and the fibers of the suit are woven with a strain of spores handpicked for their voracious appetite for human flesh. The key to getting the suit to work effectively is to bury the body early, usually within 24 hours which allows early decomposition, and this activates the spores. The company advertises their suits in this way. Quote, unlike conventional burial and cremation, they do not use harsh toxic chemicals, pollute the environment, or waste precious natural resources. The Infinity Burial products also go a step beyond other green burial options by cleansing and purifying toxins that accumulate in the body. If left unabated, these toxins end up contaminating the surrounding environment. End quote. And here we thought that humans made good fertilizer. We guess that's only if mushrooms help with the process. Now that certainly is odd. Turn out the lights. The party's just getting started. This Day in History This 
This episode's This Day in History is brought to us by Carbon Lilies. On this day, February 15th, in 399 BCE, Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, is sentenced to death after being found guilty of, quote, denying the gods recognized by the state and introducing new divinities, and secondly, of corrupting the young, end quote. During his life, Socrates was an artist, a soldier, and finally a philosopher. His methods and his search for happiness through wisdom led to him being loved by many, but vilified by others since high society was not always represented in the best light. Most Athenians at this time were fixated on physical beauty, past glories, and the idea of wealth. While Socrates attacked these values in favor of putting more emphasis on the greater importance of the mind. Not everyone appreciated the humorous way that Socrates challenged conventional Greek thinking, feeling it was a threat to their way of life. The charge of impiety was believed to have been politically and personally motivated. Trying to distance themselves from the 30 tyrants of Athens who had just been overthrown, the accusers used Socrates' relationship with his former student Critias, considered one of the worst of the tyrants, as an example of how he corrupted young minds. Refusing to hire a speechwriter as was customary, even though gifted speechwriter Lysias offered his services free of charge, Socrates defended himself. He would not plead for his life or give a self-justifying defense, stating that he was instead a benefactor to the Athenian people. This did not go over well. The guilty at this time were allowed to suggest an alternative punishment to a death sentence. Most would beg for mercy and to be exiled, but Socrates suggested that he be held in honor and to have free meals served in the Prytaneum, a place reserved for the heroes of the Olympic Games. This was seen as an added insult to the Athenian courts. Socrates was convicted and sentenced to death by drinking a hemlock concoction, which he did without hesitation. Shortly before his final breath, Socrates described his death as a release of the soul from his body. Lucille Ball was a glamorous actress, producer, film studio head, and comedian who was not afraid to get a little messed up if it brought up a laugh. Her legacy as one of the funniest women, if not the funniest woman, on television stands to this day. Like nearly all stars in Hollywood, her life was one of successes and failures. Her greatest success was the television show, I Love Lucy, and it has never been out of syndication. She was the first female to head a major Hollywood studio. The spirit of her comedy endures to today, and it would seem Lucy's actual spirit is still here with us in the afterlife. Join us as we explore the life and the afterlife of Lucille Ball. Lucille Desiree Ball was born on August 6, 1911 in Jamestown, New York. Her childhood was not one that would lend itself to success in life as a comedian. Poverty and tough circumstances plagued her early life. Her father, Henry, who was nicknamed Had, was an electrician. He moved the family from New York to Montana looking for work. Later, he relocated the family to Michigan so he could work for the Michigan Bell Company. When Lucy was just three years old, Had contracted typhoid fever and he died. She always claimed that this was her first real memory. I was just noticing that Lucille's beginning of her middle name is actually the name of her future husband. Isn't that interesting? And it's her mother's name, so that's where it had come from. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because Des- Desiree might have been a popular name back then, but I just saw the Desi, and I almost thought we were getting ready to go to the name that we'll get to later, I'm sure. Almost like it's fate. Her mother, Desiree, was pregnant with Lucy's brother, Fred, at the time, and she moved everyone back to Jamestown so she could find work in a factory. Desiree met a man named Ed Peterson and married him. 
Peterson didn't like kids, and he wasn't about to raise another man's children. He moved himself and Desiree to Detroit without Fred or Lucy. Lucy was passed off to his parents. They were poverty-stricken, and her step-grandmother was, ironically, a humorless woman. Desiree returned to her children when Lucy was 11. Lucy got her first taste of performing when she was 12. Her stepfather was a Shriner, and he suggested she try out for the course line for their next show. She loved the feeling she got from performing and later decided at 15 that she wanted to try acting. She begged her mother to allow her to attend John Murray Anderson's School of the Dramatic Arts in New York City, and her mother agreed. Not necessarily because she wanted Lucy to become an actress. She thought this route would get Lucy away from her boyfriend at the time, who was 23. Yeah, so that boyfriend was 23 and she was 14, 15. I know that probably was not, although that wasn't that uncommon back then. I mean, back then it was a little bit more okay, but yeah, nowadays we'd be like pedophile. <laughs> no kidding. And we're, we're grateful I didn't meet you when I was 23. That is true. You would have been a pedophile too. Now I'm just a cougar. <laughs> <laughs> Tough circumstances hit Lucy twice more in her childhood. On July 5th in 1927, Lucy's family was out in the backyard shooting a new 22 caliber rifle her grandfather had bought as a present for her brother. They were aiming at tin cans. A neighbor boy named Warner Erickson came over uninvited. The girlfriend of Lucy's brother was taking aim at one of the cans when Warner's mother hollered for him to come home. The gun went off and Warner was shot. The bullet severed his spine and his family sued the balls. It ruined her grandfather and they ended up losing the house and having to sell all their possessions. The next circumstance seems to be a case of rheumatic fever that hit Lucy in 1928. She was 17 at the time and working as a Hattie Carnegie model. She ran a fever one day and got horrible leg pains. She ended up having to stay at home with her family and put her acting pursuits on the back burner for three years while she recovered. Wow. The interesting thing about this is sometimes it's reported that she had rheumatoid arthritis, but it would have had to have been a miraculous case of that because within three years she was back at it. Most people know if you have rheumatoid arthritis you have that for the rest of your life and she never had the weird the joints swell and bend and do all kinds of stuff and she never had that so either she had a really rare form of rheumatoid arthritis or i assumed it was rheumatic fever since she ran a fever and had achy joints but it put her down for three years which is pretty major Right. That's a really long time, especially when you're trying to launch your career. Yeah, especially if you're thinking that she's a model, so she's walking around. She probably was doing a little bit of dancing. Lucy returned to New York City in 1932 and pursued work on Broadway under the name Diane Belmont. She picked a great name, didn't she? Belmont? <laughs> <laughs> she would be hired for a course and then quickly fired. She became frustrated and decided to head to Hollywood. Her first job was as a Goldwyn girl promoting the movie Roman Scandals in 1933. It was at this time that Lucy changed the color of her locks. We asked Spectacular crew members about their thoughts on Lucy. Michelle DePriest had commented, quote, I love her. She was ahead of her time, a great role model for women. I think it's funny. I read something, I think, about that she was a blonde who became famous as a redhead and Marilyn Monroe was a redhead who became famous as a blonde. If I'm not mixed up, I think that that's a neat factoid, end quote. It would seem that Lucy's true hair color was chestnut color, and she dyed it blonde at this time. Yeah, so she, she started off with a brownish kind of coloring, but most people who would have seen her in early pictures would see her as blonde. So unless they saw a picture when she was a little girl, that would be why they would say that she was a blonde who went to redhead. 
Lucy landed her first role as an extra in the movie The Three Musketeers. In 1937, she got her first big part in Stage Door with Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn. She continued getting roles in films that were considered second tier into the 1940s. She even earned the moniker Queen of B-Movies. It was in 1940 that she met Cuban bandleader Desi Arnaz. She was filming the movie Dance Girl Dance. They starred together in her next film, Too Many Girls, and the couple fell in love. Many felt that they were mismatched. Desi was young and considered a ladies' man. People thought it wouldn't last, but they ended up getting married. It was in 1942 that Lucy went from blonde to redhead, and she would hold that trademark look for her entire life. MGM had asked her to do it. Things were rough in the marriage, and by 1944, Lucy had filed for divorce. They reconciled and were married for 20 years. So there she goes from blonde to redhead, and it wasn't her idea, but it was a good one. Yes, because that's, that's definitely her trademark hair color. And I have to admit, I always thought she was a redhead. I did not know that I, that was not no, her real color. I didn't know she was a brunette, then blonde, then redhead. Mm-hmm. Lucy became a mother for the first time in 1947, giving birth to a daughter named Madeline D. In 1948, she was cast in My Favorite Husband as Liz Cougat, A Wacky Wife. It was a radio program from CBS Radio. It was so successful that CBS decided to take it to television. They asked Lucy to develop it, and she agreed to do it, but only if Desi could play her husband. CBS balked at the request because they thought the viewing public would reject the premise of a red-headed white woman being married to a Cuban. They would reject the premise, even though that was real life. That's kind of funny. It is kind of funny because I'm like, well, that's what they were actually doing. (laughs) They will reject that, even though it's true. Of course, (laughs) that's what TV does now, right? Exactly. CBS finally agreed. The year was 1950, and Lucy and Desi founded Desilu Productions to produce the show. Desilu became the second largest independent television production company, and in 1962, it became the number one independent production company. It would go on to produce The Untouchables and Star Trek. Lucy actually bought Desi out in 1962 and ran Desilu by herself until she sold it in 1967, making her the first woman to run a production company. Pretty amazing. Very much so, because you don't think of her when you're watching like the Lucy show and, and things that she was this businesswoman. And a very powerful businesswoman. I mean, here she's going up to CBS and telling them, hey, you like what I'm doing? Well, you can't have it unless you agree to my request. And it's going to continue. There's going to be more demands, quote unquote, coming. And everybody would bend to what she wanted. So I don't know if it was that fiery redhead, even though she wasn't really a true redhead, but she was a no-nonsense which is why it amazes me she was married to Desi for 20 years. But back to CBS and this television program, Desilu produced a pilot for the show and CBS didn't care for it and dropped the project. Lucy believed in it and she and Desi took it on the road as a vaudeville act. It was very successful and soon I Love Lucy was on CBS television. CBS was met by another demand from Lucy. She wanted to film the show in Hollywood. Most television was done in New York. The other demand was that film part. Television was done as a live medium, but Lucy wanted to tape the show and broadcast it later. This was an expensive process, and CBS said they would only agree to it if Lucy and Desi took a pay cut. Lucy got the better end of the deal in the end because she retained the rights to the shows, and CBS ended up paying a million dollars to get the shows back. Lucy used that money to purchase RKO Studios, and Desilu Studios was founded. 
So what was going on here is because she wanted to film everything in Hollywood. We've noticed this living on the East Coast as everything comes on here much later at night. Like our local news doesn't even start until 11 o'clock at night. So we never. And so over on the Pacific Coast, they'd be ready to go live at a certain time and it would be too late for the East Coast or it wouldn't be at a good time it just didn't work out very well to try to do this coast-to-coast thing, which is why she wanted to do the taping, because then they could play it whenever, at whatever time, and hit prime time. So it was very smart on her part, but it apparently was an expensive process to do video. There were other innovations with the show. It filmed before a live studio audience. Listener Jenny Lee Watt commented, quote, Did you know that the laughter from the audiences for I Love Lucy were so genuine and intense that they recorded it for use on other sitcoms? Kind of creepy to think that when you watch shows with recorded laughter, you are literally listening to the laughter of the dead, end quote. I'd never thought of it that way, but thanks for pointing that out, Jenny Lee. <laughs> yeah, it's just made every kind of laugh track, laugh track okay. a little bit creepy. <laughs> But I thought that was really neat. I did not know that uh, they had this live audience so that they recorded it. They said, you know, that's such a great sound that we're going to keep that for other ones, which goes to show you that's just how funny the show was. Absolutely. And I have to say, I do that. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen an episode. I laugh out loud every time. That's how I know a sitcom is good. If it gets me to laugh out loud, it's good. Yeah, and sometimes when she laughs out loud, it's a huge belly laugh. And I just have to tell our spectacular people are listeners but we thought our niece was choking when she was just a baby and then we realized she was trying to copy diane's belly laugh but she kept i mean we thought something was caught in her throat because she was going <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> other innovations were using multiple cameras and different sets adjacent to each other i love lucy dominated the ratings and people became very attached to the characters and storylines one of those storylines was writing Lucy's real-life pregnancy into the show, which was another innovation on television. Not only was pregnancy not supposed to be shown on TV, the word pregnant was banned from use. It was agreed to go forward with the story, but only if expecting was used instead of pregnant. This was Lucy's third pregnancy. In 1951, daughter number two, Lucy Arnaz, had been born. The next child would be their son, Desi Arnaz, Jr., I knew, I'd heard stories about how the pregnancy wasn't really something you were supposed to be showing on TV, but I had no idea you weren't allowed to even use the word pregnant. It was okay to say expecting, but not pregnant. Isn't that funny? Exactly. And so Josh can be very proud. I just said a banned word on the show. That's right. And because they thought it was so ridiculous, Desi did a little tongue in cheek since he would play on his accent of saying spectin. And so he would get people to laugh because he would say spectin instead of expecting. Do you have a favorite storyline from the uh, favorite episode? Hmm. I absolutely love watching where she's in the candy factory and she's trying to get the candies on the conveyor belt and it starts to speed up and she's like shoving them in her mouth, shoving them down her shirt because she just oh, can't keep up. Pretty much any time she's doing anything with production type things like making cakes and stuff, it just always goes dreadfully wrong. And Phil and Monica Childers had been to the museum that's at her gravesite. And I guess there's a set in there that set up like the commercial that she was making for Vita Meta Vegemine. 
<laughs> and so it's a picture of them both, you know, pretending like they're taking some of that. And that to me is one of the most hilarious things I have ever seen on TV is she, there's a lot of alcohol in this concoction that she's trying to sell. And they tell her to, you know, take a taste of it so people can see that you really are thinking, saying that this is good and it's legitimate. And she keeps taking spoonfuls of this stuff. And as she's taking spoonfuls of this 50% alcohol, she's like, and saying it all different. Because I actually had to look up the word because I'm like, was it Veda Vita Maija Mijamite or Vitamita Mevegemite? Because that's what she starts doing. And then she's like falling over the podium practically and can hardly stand up and finally basically passes out. It's just hilarious. So allow us to join the thousands of happy, happy people and get a great big bottle of The country was riveted by Lucy's pregnancy. Lucy was going to have to give birth by cesarean, so the storyline was written to coincide with the real delivery. So both Lucy and her character gave birth on the same day. Audiences waited with bated breath. They called CBS for information. The 1952 presidential election had to battle with ratings against I Love Lucy. Dwight Eisenhower's swearing in had 29 million viewers, while the birth episode got 44 million. See, people are smart sometimes. This is what's more important, indeed. Absolutely. The show ran for six seasons and was ranked number one for four of those years and won five Emmys. The run ended in 1957, and Lucy and Desi moved forward with a new show called The Lucy and Desi Comedy Hour. After the last episode of The Lucy and Desi Comedy Hour was filmed in 1960, Lucy filed for divorce from Desi, claiming that their real marriage was nothing like what people watched on TV and that living with Desi was a nightmare. He was apparently a philanderer and an alcoholic. Mm, that's a tough one to live with, for sure, even yeah. if you are a comedian. Yeah. You know, that might be why she was a comedian, too, because a lot of comedians kind of deal with their chaotic lives. A lot of times they deal with it through comedy, because most comedians, if you look back at Gilda Radner's story, John Belushi, they have like kind of a lots of turmoil. You know, you're right. As I was writing paragraph about her early life, I got to thinking, I put it that you wouldn't think she'd be a comedian coming out of this troubled childhood. But then as I thought about it, I thought along those lines and I went, but it seems like there's a lot of comedians who not only did they come out of maybe a bad childhood or had issues in their life, but even as adults, obviously look at Robin Williams. None of us would have known that that man was depressed to the point of wanting to take his own life. And he made, I mean, he's one of the funniest guys out there and made me laugh out loud many times. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that there was a lot of turmoil behind her comedy. It was amazing. They were able to make it look really good on television. <laughs> they, they looked like they really just adored each other. Absolutely. Didn't she also not get along very well with her co-hosts? Vivian Vance and her apparently did not like each other, but they obviously liked working together because when she as we're going to talk about, goes on to making another right. sitcom. That's who she wants on it with her. Now, I definitely know that Vivian Vance and the guy who played her husband, Fred, despised each other. And she hated working opposite an older man. Because oh. I think he was like 25 years older than her. Oh, wow. And she hated it. So their relationship actually did play out for real on television because they didn't seem to have any love for each <laughs> other on that show. In 1960, she married comedian Gary Morton. He was 13 years younger than her, and she got him involved in the production company. In 1967, she sold Desilu to Gulf Western, and it became part of Paramount Pictures. 
Through the 60s and 70s, Lucy made a handful of films and she launched two other sitcoms, The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy. They did all right, but nothing would be like her original genius show. She tried to revive her television career in the 1980s, but nothing really stuck. She made her last public appearance on the 61st Academy Awards on which she and Bob Hope received standing ovations. On April 26, 1989, Lucille Ball died after having a surgical procedure at the age of 77. She had an acute aortic aneurysm that caused her to have an emergency surgery in which she received an aortic transplant from a young man who died in a motorcycle accident. She started to recover quickly, but by the end of the week, she was complaining of pains in her abdomen, and she died shortly after lapsing into a coma. It was discovered that she'd had another aortic aneurysm, but this one was in her abdomen. She's buried at Lakeview Cemetery in Jamestown, New York. And as I mentioned earlier, Phil and Monica had gone to her grave, so they shared their picture of her tombstone with us that is up in the show notes today. And she's buried there with her parents, and uh, her brother's also there, too. He was buried there in 2007. Denise, before we jump into the hauntings, we should probably touch briefly on the elephant in the room. This is very timely to talk about this particular topic when it comes to Lucille Ball, because I'm listening to the You Must Remember This podcast, and Karina Longworth, who writes, produces, and hosts that, has just started a series on the Hollywood Blacklist, and so people probably know what we're about to talk about here. The House Un-American Activities Committee brought Lucille Ball in to testify before the committee. She was indeed a registered member of the Communist Party in America for a brief time. The Los Angeles Times interviewed her about her secret testimony and if she thought that this revelation would hurt her career. She answered, quote, hurt me? I have more faith in the American people than that. I think any time you give the American people the truth, they're with you, end quote. Lucy explained that she originally registered to vote and claimed the Communist Party for her grandfather's benefit because he was a zealous socialist. She did host a meeting at her home in the 1930s for new members of the party. She was a member in 1936 and in 1938, but after that, Lucy votes for Democrats and Republicans. Desi addressed the issue before one of their episodes when he said, quote, the only thing read about Lucy is her hair, and even that is not legitimate, end quote. I thought it was pretty clever to put it that way. And not to bring politics into the show, for me personally, what I took issue with this is as an American, you have a right to believe in whatever you want to. You have a freedom of religion. We have freedom of the press. You have freedom to belong to whatever political party you want to. And as long as you are not working towards overthrow of the government, there's nothing illegal about belonging to the Communist Party. I have absolutely no love for the Communist Party. I will say that. But I think these people had a right to belong to that if you wanted to. And the government does not have the right to haul any private citizen or public citizen, as these actors and actresses were, before them and demand that they tell them what their political affiliation is. Exactly. And now you all just got it live. Just a snippet of Diane's The Freedom's Wing show. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell people I lean uh, libertarian. And so I am very much into freedom. And so I get really bent out of shape when people start stepping on freedom or telling people they need to do things a certain way or what have you. And any any government involvement, I am very much for limited, limited, limited government. Lucille Ball lived at 1000 North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills at the time of her death. Lucy's second husband, Gary, sold the house and the new owners had it torn down. 
Lucy lived in the house for so many years that perhaps it was hard for her to leave it in the afterlife. Or maybe she's remained here because she's upset that her home was destroyed. And this just goes to show that even though a property has been destroyed, there could still be hauntings going on there with a new building. Many witnesses claim that Lucy is the spirit behind supernatural activity in the home that was built in the spot where her house used to stand. While Lucy's home was in the demolition stage, a friend of hers decided to drive past the place one last time, perhaps to say goodbye. Several walls were already missing. The friend could see into Lucy's bedroom. Something caught his eye and he noticed a tall redhead looking through the fence that was around the property. He thought to himself that she resembled Lucy, and then she turned and looked at him and he had no doubt that it was Lucy. She appeared to be sad and confused. She looked back at the house and then turned and walked away. Once she got to the south corner, she disappeared. Windows break without reason. Loud, disembodied voices originate in the attic, as does sounds of furniture and boxes moving around as if someone is rearranging things. Even more eerie is the claim that the tune from I Love Lucy is heard playing softly in the attic. The owners come home some days to hear what sounds like a party going on upstairs, but there is no one else in the house. Lucy's ghost is thought to haunt more than just her former home. She quite possibly might be at one of her home away from home locations, which would be the Desilu Studios. Today, the building is known as the Hart Building, and it sits on the property of Paramount Studios. Her disembodied spirit has been seen on the upper floors by night watchmen. After her spirit is seen, the scent of flowers is detected. This is how people know that Lucy has paid a visit to the studios. Is it possible to get to meet Lucille Ball in the afterlife? Has her legend carried on after death for more than just her personal legacy? Does Lucy still walk among the living? Is Lucille Ball a ghost? That is for you to decide. She seemed to really love life and relish it, which would be one reason why she would hold on to her life here. Especially those parts that were the success parts of her life. Yeah, and I mean, so Desilu Studios would have been her heart and soul. I bet when she finally decided to sell it, it was a really hard decision to make. It just probably was too much for her. And I bet it was gut-wrenching. That would be very, very hard to give up. Yeah, and it's just and it was such a huge success because there was a lot of independent movie production companies out there and to be at number 2 and then number 1 that's really saying something. Well, back in in that time of our of our history to do that as a woman is even saying more. Some other listener comments that we got on Lucy Stephen Pappas said, "I grew up watching old reruns of I Love Lucy. I still think it's one of the most genuinely funny things to come out of Hollywood talented lady." And from Phil Childers Monica and I got our marriage certificate in her hometown. The museum is awesome. Highly recommend it. And Rhonda K. Mayfield, love, love, love Lucy. That's probably why it was called that. All right. On our next show, we are featuring, we're going up near Plymouth, Denise. Yay. We like Plymouth. Fearing Tavern. This was suggested to us by our listener and member of our HGB research crew, Diane Moores. Perfect. Well, I'm ready to go back up to that area for sure. All right. And let's share some reviews. The first one comes in five stars, a moldering librarian. So I'm seeing somebody in the corner of a library somewhere. (laughs) I've come to love this podcast. It is a recent discovery and I simply love it. Keep up the excellent work, ladies. Thank you. Moldering. Lorette V, five star, wicked good. History goes bump is perfect for those who enjoy the supernatural and folklore tied back to historical places, people and events. The show has an excellent format with good variety and the perfect length of 30 to 45 minutes. Diane and Denise have great conversations full of sincerity and humor. 
You can hear feel that these ladies truly enjoy their work and personally connecting with their family of followers. History Ghost Bump is wicked good. Queen of Grok, five stars, playing catch up. I'm playing catch up here as I just finished episode 16. I enjoy this show so much because it mixes two of my favorite interests, history and the paranormal. I felt the need to go back from the beginning and it feels that each episode I get to know the hosts more. They are honest down to earth and while they do share their opinion and or beliefs, they don't claim to know it all or to be correct. They're open-minded and when discussing the paranormal, open-mindedness is a must. Keep up the good work, ladies. Ad Martinez, so much fun, five stars. I'm more a fan of haunted history rather than the general paranormal, so HGB is exactly what I was looking for. I started from the beginning, so I'm still binge listening to catch up. I highly recommend this podcast to anyone who wants history stories with a twist. I love the oddities and the two few appearances from Diane's mom. Mom will be happy to hear that. Yes, she will. Who's a fantastic historian. Diane and Denise are so engaging with their audience. They feel like good friends you could go have coffee with and get lost in time. This podcast is a never-ending slumber party with friends, giggles, ghost stories, and the occasional pop-in from mom. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that is, that's a good comparison. Now we're going to start calling it our slumber party. Thank you for that ad. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to us by our executive producers. Welcome to new executive producers, Rob Sheffield and Shelley Emery. And thank you to Jade Lewis, who upped her pledge, and for Laura Kirchmeyer sending another one-time donation. Thank you. Hey, this is Christopher. And this is Joe. From the Curioso Podcast. And here at the Curioso, when we want to listen to ghost tours for the theater of the mind, we listen to the History Goes Bump podcast. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle and Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast. Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.